millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He koonai ipurangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Lenny Holmwood clutches his hands together and goes back to the 7th of May 2009. It's half past nine in the morning. He's lying on the pavement at Napier's Hospital Hill. The ground is cold underneath him, but the pain at his hip is hot. He sees bullets spark as they hit the ground. He can hear the moans of wounded police officers. But he wonders, who'll feed his cat, Scrappy? I noticed Len sneak and he wasn't far from me. Len Snee's a senior constable with the Napier Police. I called over to him, checked him, had a look at him, seen the entry marks. It's then that Lenny sends a famous text that marks perhaps the only light moment in the 51-hour ordeal that was the Napier siege. Yarn busted, free cop shot, me leg... Can you feed Scrappy? Because my mate had the key to the house and he could look after the cat. Kia ora, I'm Annika Smith and this is the story of the Napier siege, a three-day standoff between the police and gunman Jan Mullinar after a routine search warrant went horribly wrong. This is Eyewitness, Kia Manaho. Jan Mullinar was Lenny's mate. He'd rented a house from him in the early 2000s and they'd stayed in touch ever since. It was a crisp autumn morning when the 54-year-old headed over to Jan's place for a cuppa after a boozy night out. He didn't notice two unmarked utes parked outside 41 Chaucer Road. <laughs> Nothing clicked in my head and then walked into the police for waiting. I knew what was on because you could smell his marijuana. That's what gave him away. Jan's not home. He's out walking his dog when police officers Grant Diver, Bruce Miller and Len Snee knock on his door. They suspect Molinar is running a small dope-growing operation. So, search warrant in hand, they're let into the house by his partner, Darwin Keefe. Lenny arrives as Diver and Miller find cannabis plants and a shotgun in the garage. Upstairs, it's quiet. Darwin's making a cup of oil, waiting for Jan to get back. And as soon as he walked in, it exploded. Lenny sees Jan fly into a rage, swearing at Constable Snee and demanding the police officers get off his property. Jan disappears down the hallway. When he returns, he's got a rifle. He demands everyone get out of the house, and they do. Outside, the situation seems to have de-escalated, but actually, it hasn't even begun. Jan's eyes follow the group as they reach the roadside. Len Snee stops beside his ute and turns to face the house. Suddenly, he's shot and hits the ground. Jan's standing on his balcony, his telescopic rifle now pointing at the other officers. They dive for cover. Lenny watches in horror as Constable Miller is hit in the back and another bullet shoots through Diver's forearm, lodging in his stomach. 
Lenny's memory gets patchy here. There are seconds and movements he's lost over the years. But the next thing he remembers is Jan Molinar standing in front of him. And Jan's angry. You know, I had the moans of the officers up the road. I looked at them over my shoulder. And as I looked back, the bell was swinging past me towards them. That's when I grabbed the bell and swung it away. They struggle over the gun, but Jan is two or three times Lenny's scrawny frame. He's sent flying and the gun goes off. The bullet hits a footpath. Then Lenny's hit. He doesn't feel it at first, but when he tries to get to his feet, his left leg collapses. Molinar goes back inside the house. It's just Lenny and Constable Snee now. The other officers have disappeared. Lenny has saved their lives. My wrestling the gun gave them uh, 10, 20 seconds yeah, they needed to get out of line of sight. Lying metres away from him is Len Snee. He's been shot at least twice, once at close range. He's in bad shape. Bullets fire overhead as Lenny Holmwood dials 111. He can only watch and wait, helpless. He was just struggling. You hear the breath going, and then you hear the last sigh when everything gave way. And for me, that that was the hardest part of the day, watching someone fade and not be able to do anything. Chaos in Napier this morning after a police officer was shot dead. Two officers were wounded and a civilian injured during a routine search warrant. Parts of the city are in lockdown while the police searched for the armed offender. Many shots were heard to be fired in the early afternoon during what's understood to be a standoff between police and the offender. By complete coincidence, Hawke's Bay's top police officers are at the Napier War Memorial Centre for an emergency management meeting. Before he goes in, Sam Hoyle, the Eastern District Commander, gets a call. A sort of phone call you never want to take. Three of our officers have been shot on Napier Hill and we didn't know where two of them were. Sam Hoyle takes immediate control. He drives to the old Napier Police Station with Inspector Mike O'Leary. This will be the Operations Command Centre until it moves to the Defence Force Base. An AOS squad is deployed to Hospital Hill, while Mike O'Leary heads to the scene as the forward commander. With two officers missing, he knows there's no time to lose. And from that point, uh, my job really is uh, let's preserve life, let's minimise uh, danger to the community, so we have to then start thinking about um, evacuations. It's clear Mike O'Leary remembers the day well. Hearing rapid-fire, high-powered semi-automatic firearms, striking vegetation, striking roads, striking concrete. As he gets to work, a car with bullet holes in it pulls up. Amazingly, Bruce Miller is inside. Detective Sergeant Tim Smith was one of the first police officers on the scene. He'd gone down Chaucer Road, unarmed, and used the car to rescue Miller. They had uh, carried out a very swift and heroic rescue, bundled him in the car and got him out. But Grant took a little bit more finding. It wasn't until we got a phone call from another member of the public to say where he was. Grant Diver is still at the bottom of the hill. Once Bruce Miller is put into an ambulance, AOS and Stephen Smith from St John move down the hill to rescue him. Two AOS officers also make it to Lenny Holmwood, all under rapid gunfire. 
After Lenny, Bruce and Grant are on their way to hospital, the only one left is Len Snee. Sam Hoyle says it was just too dangerous to go and get him. That was probably one of the worst parts of the whole operation for us. The effort went into getting Len back from where he was lying in Chaucer Road. Mike O'Leary says Len would have wanted them to be safe. AOS training kicked in and they know that Lenny would have said, do what you have to do, you can come back to me when you need to. Obviously extremely hard for any police officer to leave one of our own fallen, but there was no alternative short of losing further lives. By this point, the AOS has established a close cordon around Mullinar's property. He's holed up in his home, firing off rounds as a negotiation team is brought in. He had a large amount of firearms, I think around about 21, a huge amount of ammunition, what we call IEDs, improvised explosive devices. He had punched holes in walls, so anyone coming into that house uh, were going to be challenged, and brutally so. Time passes as a siege's negotiation team tries to contact Molinar by landline and cell phone. They don't get anywhere and eventually ask his partner, Delwyn Keefe, to speak to him. Delwyn calls around 11pm that night. Jan sounds tired and depressed, but he's defensive. By the morning, he wants to speak to a friend, but the police don't think it's a good idea. They worry he wants to say goodbye. As the siege enters its 32nd hour, RNZ's checkpoint host Mary Wilson speaks to Brody, who's holed up in his home at the south end of Chaucer Road. Oh, there's some lights coming on now. OK, can you tell us a little bit more about what's happening? We do have to be a little careful because he could be listening to the radio, but can you tell us anything more about what's going on? I just saw a couple of uh, torch lights going by the, the LAVs. There's still random yelling going on. I can just make out a couple of couple of guys walking up the hill, down. They're coming down the hill in the middle of the road. Police, police obviously. Look, yeah. we'll leave it there for the moment, Brody. Thanks okay. very much for that. No worries. The media add a layer of complexity to the police operation, but at times their interests compete with the police's. Sam Hoyle's only concerned about the eyes and ears of one individual, and that's Jan Molinar. I was well aware he was probably doing that. We were concerned and we had conversations early on with some of the media outlets who were filming um, AOS officers and that on the hill, that they were inadvertently potentially giving their position away. On the second day of the siege, it's finally safe enough for the police to get to Len Snee's body. He's brought back to the army base in a Defence Force LAV, or light armoured vehicle. We stood in a bit of a, in a row um, as the LAV came in and they backed it in. We took him. They took him from the back of the lab and our investigators took him and took care of him from then until they were finished and gave him back to his family. In the end, police negotiations with Jan Molinar fail. He shoots himself in the head on the afternoon of the 8th of May. The police wait a full day to make sure it's safe to enter the house. The three-day siege is finally over, but Sam Hoyle says it wasn't the outcome police wanted. In one respect, a disappointment for me because I'd dearly love to have seen him be held to account. The negotiators have spent so many hours with him and I think they and I felt a bit cheated at the end of that. 
thousands of people turned out for Len Snee's funeral a few days later. A New Zealand flag was draped over his coffin and his police cap sat on top of it. Len had been a cop for more than 30 years, but he meant so much more to his community. He was a husband, father, rugby player and a mate to many. Mike O'Leary reflects on a life cut short. I would say if Len was alive today, he'd be starting to think perhaps about retirement with one to two years to go. But it wasn't to be. Investigations after the siege found Mullinar had given up his gun licence 15 years prior and built his weapons cache illegally. The police didn't know this when they knocked on his door. What we need from the public is if they know something about someone and they're not comfortable about what's going on, they need to tell us because the police don't know everything. In his 2010 report, Coroner David Creera said it was clear people knew about Molinar's cannabis, knew about his firearms and knew he could be violent and unpredictable. But no one said anything. Coroner Creera called for a review of the Arms Act, but it didn't happen. Most of the 17 firearms found at Jan Molinar's house were high-calibre or semi-automatic weapons that had no legitimate use. You need a special licence for these nowadays. On the 10th anniversary of the siege, family and friends of Len Snee gathered at the Napier Sailing Club to remember him. Mike O'Leary was among the police officers dressed in their number ones. He still works in Napier, but goes under a new title as the district's professional conduct manager. Sam Hoyle took up the role of Wellington's district commander five years ago. Reflecting back, he doesn't think stricter gun laws would have stopped Jan Molinar that day in Napier. What will be different in the future with the new, legis- new approach to legislation, whatever the final legislation is, the intent is that there are less of these high-powered semi-automatic weapons in circulation, which will make them harder to procure illegally. So that will be be a positive moving forward. There were many heroes that day in May 2009, but Lenny Holmwood stands out. Just an ordinary bloke, he was thrust into one of the country's biggest events. But ten years on, he's not sleeping well, and it's got nothing to do with the ache in his hip. Down a quiet street in Marae he keeps busy reading books and pottering in his veggie garden. It's a life that's a far cry from the drama of the Napier siege, but his memories will never leave him. This episode of Eyewitness was produced by me, Annika Smith, and engineers Alex Aylett McMillan and Jana Witter. Thanks to Natonga Sound and Vision for the archival audio. You can subscribe to Eyewitness at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Radio Public and of course rnz.co.nz slash series. Do give us a rating so it's easier for others to find out about us. If you want to hear more stories like this, check out RNZ's Black Sheep series. William Ray delves into the shady, controversial and sometimes downright villainous characters of New Zealand history. Thanks for listening. Mātia wā. 
And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.